You know, one of uh, my favorite things about the Old Testament portion of our Bibles, which makes up the first two-thirds of our Bibles, is that it has some incredible stories, incredible stories in it. These stories, they, they bend our minds a little bit. They seem almost as if they're from a different world at different times, but they're undeniably interesting. One of the other things that these stories do in the Old Testament is they raise our vision of just how big God can be. And tonight I've got a good one for you. Oftentimes these stories uh, have characters within them that have incredible names as well because this is an entirely different culture, an entirely different time. And tonight is no exception. Everybody say this with me. Belshazzar, on the count of three. One, two, three. Belshazzar. Yeah, it's good. King Belshazzar, in fact. And we are introduced to his story in the book of Daniel. Daniel is named the way it is because the most important human character, God's the main character of the book of Daniel, but the most important human character in Daniel is a dude named Daniel. Sometimes you don't have to think that hard, right? In fact, the most famous story involving Daniel happens one chapter after the one that we're looking at tonight. Belshazzar's story is in Daniel 5, and in Daniel 6, famously, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, right? That's a good story, too. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because Daniel 5 is also really good, and and here's how Daniel Five begins. We're going to find out a lot about King Belshazzar right from the drop. Verse 1, Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Okay, so we have never heard of this guy before Daniel 5.1. And I'm going to say he comes in hot, does he not? Right? He is throwing a massive party for 1,000 of his most important subjects, and the text, the Bible, makes sure to emphasize that this dude was getting his drank on, okay? King Belshazzar, right? And we might say, yeah, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? He's king, right? You might be thinking to yourself, well, man, if I was king, I, I might throw a party. I might drink wine in front of my guests, right? This guy can do what he wants. Pause there a second, though. He's saying King Belshazzar is only sort of king. Well, that's awkward. How does, how does this work? Well, actually, his dad, Nabonidus, everybody say Nabonidus, okay? His dad is the actual king of Babylon. And this is important because for years and years and years, people that wanted to discredit the Bible, that did not believe the Bible, they pointed to this and they said, look, pfft, Daniel 5. Daniel 5 says that King Belshazzar was king of Babylon during this period, but we know from sources outside the Bible that it actually was his dad, Nabonidus. See, the Bible can't be trusted. And then more archaeological evidence was discovered, and do you know what was true about King Nabonidus, his dad? For 17, I'm sorry, for 10 of the 17 years that Nabonidus reigned in Babylon, the dude wasn't even in the kingdom, he was elsewhere. And when he was gone for more than half of his reign, who do you think he left in charge? Everybody say it with me. Belshazzar, right? These guys functioned as co-kings, as co-regents. Or you might, it might help you to think about it this way. King Belshazzar was a little bit like Dwight Schrute from The Office. 
right? He's assistant to the king of Babylon, right? No? Okay, all right, I got some. That's a dad joke, right? I'm, I'm required to make them. We can move on. We can move on, right? All right. This is King Belshazzar. He's only sort of king, and so this is already a little bit weird, right? Like your dad's kind of in charge, and you're, like they left for the weekend, and you're throwing this huge party. You're like, man, this guy might, like maybe Nabonidus comes home and gets mad that he drank all the wine, right? It actually, this gets even weirder if we zoom out and look at the broader historical context. So King Belshazzar, him and his dad, they are over a kingdom that's called Babylon. But over the last decades, Babylon's power, their influence had been decreasing while another kingdom, Persia, was increasing. And so, in fact, when Belshazzar is throwing this party, when he's throwing this party, there is a huge Persian army that's outside his gates. The city is surrounded. They are literally under siege. And Belshazzar is like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's throw a huge party. Now, why does he do this? It seems even stranger, doesn't it? Okay, well, there's two things you need to know about the city of Babylon. The first is that it had massive walls. Massive walls, right? Huge walls. Those are good in a siege, right? Because then particularly in this day and age of warfare, the army that's sitting outside, they can't get to you because the moment that they come close to the wall, you can throw down a bunch of stuff on them and, and cause them harm, right? So walls are good. But there is a clear counter for the army outside to these massive walls. What do you have to do? Well, all you have to do is be patient. It's sort of like me with, with my toddlers, right, with my young kids. They lock themselves in the bathroom. I can't get in, but I'm there. I'm going, you know what? In about three minutes, they're going to want a snack, right? All I got to do is be patient. I can't get in, but they're eventually going to have to come out. So that's what armies on the outside of cities would do in a siege situation. They would just sit back far enough so that the arrows from the wall archers couldn't hit them, and they would just wait. Because eventually the city would run out of food, but more common than that, the city would run out of water. The city would run out of water. And sieges end because people get real thirsty. Which brings us to the second feature of Babylon that you need to know about. Massive walls, huge walls, keep the army out. And right through the middle of the city, running underneath those walls, ran the river Euphrates. This rushing river, drinking water, water for livestock. They had farms within the walls of the city. Most scholars estimate that Belshazzar and the Babylonians, they were ready. Are you, are you ready for this? They were ready to hunker down in the city for 20 years. They were just going to hang there. You guys sit there, we'll sit here. So do you know what Belshazzar is doing when he throws this massive piece, this party? Na, 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 right? You can't get me. 20 years I'm going to sit here because I've got water and I've got walls and because of the water I've got food. So you go ahead and have your little siege. We are going to get drunk. 
Because you know, actually, I've read books on this. Scholars debate that. They're like, how drunk was this guy? They actually go back and forth. And that seems to be why the author of this chapter is saying, listen, he threw a party and he drank wine in front of them, right? I think this guy was drunk. And he almost certainly was on wine. But I think it's absolutely undeniable that he was drunk on some other things, too. On his pride, on his power, on his seeming invincibility. He was drunk on the control that he thought he had over the situation, but he had forgotten something very important. Humans, no matter if they're kings or not, are not in control of human history. We are not. God is. God is in control of human history. Belshazzar had forgotten this. And verses 2 through 4 of our passage proved to me at least that Belshazzar had forgotten that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is in control of human history. Let's read verses 2 through 4. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, right, emphasizing this again, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king that served before him and his dad, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Why? He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. We'll jump to verse 4. While they drank from them, they praised their idols, their small g gods, made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What's happening here? Well, you see, Babylon worshipped, quote, gods, little g gods of silver and gold. So he gets this brilliant idea, right? The party is going well. He's like, hey, didn't we overtake that, that little nation Israel? They had some pretty nice gold and silver cups in their temple, didn't they? Yeah, we destroyed them. Man, Nebuchadnezzar, he did a number on them. Don't we have those sitting around someplace? Hey, hey, go fetch those. Because we worship the, quote, gods of gold and silver. And if we take the holy cups out of the holy temple that the one and only God had given his presence, well, that'll just show Israel and their God how much better I am and how much better we are. So they go and they get the cups. Now, this isn't just a middle finger to Persia, the army that's outside the walls. This is a direct, I cannot emphasize enough how disrespectful this is to the only real God of the entire universe. It's a middle finger to him. Belshazzar had forgotten that humans are not in control of human history. Belshazzar had forgotten that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, does not sit out on the sidelines. This is verses 2 through 4. God doesn't sit it out. Are you ready for verse 5? I don't know that you are. Are you ready for this? Verse 5 reads this. As soon as he gives this order, as soon as they're drinking from these cups, suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote. Now I know, I know, 
some giant dismembered hand just shows up in the middle of the party and starts scratching on the wall. And some of you, some of you are like, this is why I don't believe the Bible. Because that is crazy. That could never, ever happen. And I, do, I understand that line of thinking. I'll be the first to say I've never seen a massive dismembered hand show up in the middle of anything I was doing and start writing on the wall. I will give you that. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. And you probably haven't either, right? Here's what I want to submit to you, though. Do we really have the corner on all knowledge? Do, do we really know everything there is to know? And not just us in this room. Okay, because postmodernism, and I don't mean postmodernism, but after modernism, right? Which is this idea, this movement, this line of thinking that everybody, everything has to be provable. If you can't stick it into a scientific theory and have something spit out the other end, then it never could happen. This is an effect of modernism. We need to look critically at when we live and where we live for the vast majority of human history. Most every human has been far more open to things like Daniel 5.5 than us. So are we really saying in our modern, postmodern, western culture that we are that much better, that much more, quote, evolved, that much smarter than everybody that's ever lived before us? I mean, I'm not saying things haven't gotten better. I'm not saying we haven't learned some things. I'm just saying if God is real... Why couldn't this happen? And I'm not saying it's going to happen tonight. I'm, all I'm submitting to you is if God is real, why couldn't something mind-blowing that doesn't make sense, that sort of breaks and bends our minds, why couldn't it be possible? I think it is. And you might laugh at me for this. I think what we see in Daniel 5.5 really happened. I think there was a party that was incredibly disrespectful from God, and God was like, nah. I'm about to send a dismembered hand to freak these people out. It'd freak you out, right? Can you imagine? <laughs> okay, you're at a party this weekend. What happens, right? <laughs> what happens to that, that party? If just a huge head. Okay, this is an old reference, right? But the Adams family from the 60s, this is, was a character. What if that thing, I got his picture, let's do it. What if that thing just showed up at your party this weekend and started writing on the wall? Come on. That would freak you out, right? It freaked out Belshazzar too. Want, want, want to know how? Let's look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He's like a cartoon character. Okay, the, the phrase here, his limbs gave way, <laughs> this actually can mean, and I kind of hope this really happened, this can mean that he, uh, he lost control of his bodily functions, <laughs> right? Which again, I mean like, if I'm throwing a party, I'm in charge, I do something crazy like what he did, and a huge hand shows up in the middle of the room and starts writing on the wall, I might poop my pants too, <laughs> Okay? I might, I might. So this guy, Belshazzar, right, he wants to figure this out. He wants to figure out what the writing on the wall means. Would you not want to figure out what the writing on the wall means? No, duh, he wants to figure it out. He brings in his, quote, wise men. 
his quote, wise men. All the smartest people that knew all the things, and they look at the writing on the wall. None of them can figure it out. By the way, in the book of Daniel, we have seen this play out over and over and over again. The wise men never know anything. They're the worst named group of men ever. They're the not wise men. They cannot figure it out, okay? Belshazzar is freaking out even more, does not know what to do. His mommy has to bail him out. This goes from bad to worse. The dude has pooped his pants in front of a thousand guests, and now his mommy has to come to his rescue. Because his mommy remembers in the past when things happened like this. The wise men strike out. What do we do in the book of Daniel? We call the guy that the book is named after. So his mommy's like, hey, we should call Daniel. Now, when we meet Daniel at the beginning of the book, he's a strapping young man. Not anymore. He's probably over 80 years old. Which, by the way, means that when he was thrown into the den of lions, he was 80 years old. Okay? Picture this scene with me. An 80-year-old. This is a rager. This is old school, not Downton Abbey, right? And this 80-year-old dude (laughs) is hobbling in to the midst of this, and it smells, because remember what the king did. And he's hobbling in, okay? He's done this before. He's been called into this spot before He has bailed out these kings before, and yet Belshazzar gives Daniel no respect. And I cannot emphasize how many times Daniel bailed out his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. Over and over and over again, Daniel would show up and save the day. And Belshazzar gives him no respect. Daniel starts to talk. He he begins by a lengthy retelling of King Nebuchadnezzar's story. Hey, King Belshazzar, let me take you back through history. Let me remind you everything that happened to your predecessor when he forgot who the true God of this world is. And you can almost picture King Belshazzar just sort of sitting there, right, rolling his eyes. Yeah, yeah, I know all of this. I get it. I know that's what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Why do I care? And then this is the punchline from Daniel. Are you ready? Verses 22 through 24. You're his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this yet. You have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven. Not just defied, but you have, you have taken pride in your defilement of the Lord of heaven. And you have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the, quote, gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And this is it, right? Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and who controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. Let me just, you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Friends, you are breathing right now because God wills it to be so. You are. You can disagree with me. That's what I'm submitting to you. And that was true of Belshazzar as well. And he proudly defiled And defied the God who gave him that breath. This is the punchline. Daniel doesn't give Belshazzar any time 
to respond, he moves right in. This is what the hand wrote on the wall. That's, that's why it's here on a whiteboard. Lexi wrote it, not a dismembered hand, don't worry. Mene, mene, shekel, parsin. Daniel dives right in. He knows what it means, mene. Mene means numbered, Daniel says, numbered. The Bible teaches that God has numbered every single one of our days. Every single one of our days, this is true of you, it is true of me. You have breath now because God wills it to be so, and one day you will not have breath, and that will be the perfect number of days that God has willed for your life. Why is Mene written twice? It is to drive home the point that for Belshazzar, that number is zero. Mene, Mene, numbered. Your days are numbered, and the number, Belshazzar, is zero. Shekel, shekel. What does shekel mean? Shekel means weighed. Weighed. You have been weighed in God's scales and you have come up short, Belshazzar. Mene, mene, shekel. You have been weighed. You have been numbered. You have been weighed. And parsin. Parsin means divided. Divided. Your kingdom will be divided, Belshazzar, between the Medes and the Persians, mene, mene, shekel, par, seen, numbered, weighed, divided. How does our story end? Verse, verses 30 and 31. That very night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. There's two Greek historians named Herodotus and Xenophon, and they record, this is outside the Bible, these are Greek historians, they're writing about the major world events of their day, this is outside the Bible, and do you know what they write about the fall of the great city of Babylon? Do you know what they write? They write that it happened on the night of a great party. Those guys aren't writing the Bible, they've got no reason to, Babylon was taken on the night of a great party. Bible says that too. And for us, right? For us, it would be so foolish to ignore the lessons that we can learn here. So I've got three observations for us. Number one, the writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. The writing on the wall is greater than the wall itself. Belshazzar thought that he was untouchable, and you can see why, right? Look at this picture. He thought he was untouchable. He had the walls. He had the river. Here's the irony. Are you ready for this? The irony is that his confidence, what he was so sure of, the walls and the river, ended up being his demise. Because you see, while Daniel was finishing his speech to King Belshazzar, as he was interpreting the writing on the wall, do you know what the Persian army was finishing? The Persian army was finishing building a massive dam in the river. They finished building the dam. What happened next? The riverbed dried up. You know what the Persian army did? Hop down into the riverbed. What Belshazzar thought was his source of life for the next 20 years? Dried up, gone. Persian army dropped down into the riverbed, and what do you think they did? They walked right under the walls that Belshazzar thought they could never get through. 
what he was so confident in became his demise. What he was trusting in to save him became his demise. And the same can be true for us. This is what pastor and author Brian Chappell says. I got a quote. We must consider this truth not only in the context of this ancient account of an arrogant king, but also in terms of our lives today. There are walls we too may try to erect to protect our sin from the wrath of God. We must see the walls for what they are, foolish defenses that must be abandoned for our own welfare. You've got a wall. Did you know that? I don't know what it is. Maybe your wall is intellect. You probably wouldn't say this, but internally in your deepest, darkest moments, when you're alone in your thoughts, you might think, I can outsmart God's judgment. I'm smarter than God. He's not even real. Your wall's intellect. Maybe your wall is morality. Again, you might not say this out loud, but deep down, you're thinking, I can obey my way out of God's judgment. If I'm good enough, certainly he won't judge me. This isn't true for you all yet, but one day it might be. Maybe your wall is money. You're poor college students. It's not money yet. But maybe you hope it will be money. Maybe you hope you will be successful enough that there's no way that God could judge you. Look at all this money that I made, right? Maybe your wall is entertainment. Mm. Entertainment. Our smartphones, Netflix, Amazon. What you're doing in this wall, you're trying to distract yourself from God's judgment. It's not real. It'll come later. Maybe your wall's entertainment. Maybe your wall is politics. Maybe you think you can vote your way out. No, here's, I wonder for all of you, is your wall youth? Is it? God's judgment's not that big of a deal. I'm so young. I've got time to figure this out. I'm invincible. You're not. I walked down that road. Do you know where it ended? I was 17 years old and I drove into a tree at 60 miles an hour because I fell asleep at the wheel. I shouldn't be standing here in front of you today and that shattered the invincibility that I thought I have of my youth and I'm grateful for that because I would have hung on to it a lot longer. Is your wall youth? Do you think that you're too young to be judged by God? I've got time to figure that out. Yeah, I think God's probably real, but yeah, who cares? I'll figure that out later. You don't know. The writing on the wall is God's judgment against us for misplaced trust. The writing on the wall is God's judgment against us for misplaced trust, and it is always greater than the wall itself. Which leads us to our second observation. The writing on the wall must be taken seriously. It's not fun to talk about judgment, God's judgment or otherwise, but have you ever thought about the fact that we actually love judgment? We just love it for other people, not for us. How often have we called for the judgment of others, but not for us? When it comes to us, all we want is forgiveness and grace and mercy. But when it comes to others, here's what Miroslav 
Wolf says, If I want God's judgment to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. If I want God's judgment to fall on evildoers, then I must let it fall on myself. And really, what was Belshazzar judged for? Pride? Right? Idolatry? Disrespect of God? Who among us has not failed those tests? So here's the question. How seriously are you taking the writing on the wall? How seriously are you taking the writing on your wall? Belshazzar, he was fearful, but he was fearful not of the Lord. He was fearful of consequences. And what this boils down to for him and for us is this. Why do we think our wrongdoings are wrong? Maybe we don't. Maybe they're not that big of a deal. Maybe our wrongdoings are wrong only when we get caught. Maybe we are only fearful of consequences, right? But it is not enough for our knees to knock when we get caught and when there are consequences. Our knees have to hit the ground in worship. And as our knees hit the ground in worship more and more and more, we will grow not in our fear of consequences, but in our fear of the Lord. Which sounds funny, the fear of the Lord. How could that possibly be a good thing? It is. The fear of the Lord is not about being scared of God. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a healthy and honest recognition of how big and awesome God is and how small and sinful we are. That's the fear of the Lord. And in the Bible, it is something that is beautiful and it is something that is to be pursued. The fear of the Lord, the book of Proverbs reminds us, leads to wisdom. It leads to wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the art of skillful living. Do you not want that? Do you not want the art of skillful living? That's wisdom. How do you get wisdom? You fear the Lord. You remember how big and awesome he is in relation to us as we are little and small. And in our age, we are information rich, but we are wisdom poor. You've got more information in your hand or in your pocket right now and most of the rest of the world, they wouldn't have even known what to do with it. We are information rich, but we are wisdom poor. We are terrible at living. The art of skillful living. How do you get wisdom? You fear the Lord. Wisdom. Wisdom looks at God. Wisdom looks at God, at his power, at his majesty, its control. And the response from wisdom is to worship. And wisdom looks at us. It looks at our pride, at our idolatry, at our disrespect. And the response from wisdom is to weep. Are you worshiping God and are you weeping at the sin in your own life? And finally, wisdom looks at the writing on our walls. This is there for all of us. And wisdom looks at this and it wakes up. We worship God, we weep at ourselves, and wisdom wakes up to how serious this is. So are you taking the writing on the wall seriously? Number three, the writing on the wall doesn't have to be the final word. The writing on the wall does not have to be the final word. Finally, some good news, y'all. 
Why? 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 Why doesn't the writing on the wall not have to be the final word? You know where I'm going with this. I do it every time, right? Why doesn't the writing on the wall have to be the final word? It's because of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in the flesh, who came to write upon the wall with his own blood, who came to write upon the wall with his own blood, declaring that we are justified because he was judged. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ speaks a better word than the writing on the wall. Just look at what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians. You were dead because of your sins. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then, then, then God made you alive with Jesus for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. The cross speaks a better word, does it not? Not mene, mene, shekel, parsin. The cross speaks a better word, alive, not dead. You're alive, not dead because why? Jesus died. You're redeemed. Why? Because Jesus was spent on your behalf to purchase you, to buy you back to the Father. You're alive, not dead, because Jesus died in your place. You are redeemed because Jesus was spent. You have been made righteous. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually be sin. Why did he do that? So that we could become the righteousness of God. You're righteous because Jesus was made sin and you are justified because Jesus was judged in our place and friends, you are forgiven of your sins because Jesus was condemned. That's a better word. That's a better word. Many, many, shekel, parsin, numbered, weighed, divided. Here's the final question. Here's the final question right here. What does the writing on your wall say? Because this is only true of you if you have surrendered your lives to Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, then the writing on your wall is still mene, mene, shekel, parsin. But if you have surrendered your life to Jesus then this is the writing on your wall. Alive, redeemed, righteous, justified, forgiven. Forgiven. When you look at the writing on your wall, is it judgment? Or is it Jesus? Now here's, here's what we're going to do. I went a little bit longer than I wanted to go. Okay, and I know some of you have got things to do. I handed you something when you walked in, right? I did. James is like, what is this? Why do I have it? I want to provide you all with an opportunity to process a little bit of this. I want to provide you with an opportunity to write some things down. I want to provide you with an opportunity, if you might, if I can invite you to do this, to write a letter of confession. To write a letter, right, and this, no one else is going to read this, don't worry, right, but write a letter of confession to God, a letter of confession that admits that the writing on your wall is one of judgment and that you, you desire, you want the writing on the wall of Jesus. That could be one word. It could fill up the whole front side with the lines. That's the side you're going to write on, right? 
You can fill up the whole front side. You can write whatever it is that the Lord places upon your heart. And listen, I'm not going to make anyone do this. I will never make anyone do anything that they might feel uncomfortable with. The moment I start shoving things down your throat is the moment I've gone wrong in this job, right? But I want to invite you to this. Maybe you've never done something like this before. Maybe this is already just a little bit strange to you, right? Or maybe there's something that's awakening in your heart right now. Maybe the Lord has been speaking to you a little bit through what we have heard here tonight. Maybe you're wondering what it would be like to live this kind of life. So in a moment here, I'm going to pray. And if at that point you're, you're done, again, there's no, that's totally fine. In leaving, I would just really ask you to do that quietly. Because I imagine that we're going to have some people, and I hope we're going to have some people, like you walked in here tonight and you're like, I didn't think I'd do something like this, but something shifted in me, something changed within me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and I'm going to do this. But if that's not you, that's fine. You'll be dismissed after I pray. Just please do that quietly. Please do that quietly. For the rest of you, write a letter. Only write on the side with the lines. Whenever you're done writing, I'd invite you forward, and there'll be some pens that are on the ground, special pens that are on the ground in front of the speakers here. Come forward, grab one of those pens, flip the card over, and call her on the back. Call her on the back. And for some of you, again, maybe you've never done something like this before. You walked in here tonight. You would have said, I'm definitely not a Christian, right? This could be your first step towards following Jesus. And you do not have to have everything figured out. You don't. You don't have to have everything figured out. But if this seems better to you, why not explore that? Why not explore that? Does everybody understand? Right on the front, come down afterwards. We'll move the whiteboard as well. And if you feel comfortable after you come forward, maybe you just want to grab the black marker and write one word right around here that summarizes what it is that you wrote about. You don't have to do that either, but we'll move it down there. Hear me on this. I, I love you all. After I give you a few minutes, I'm going to come back forward. We'll pray again, and I'll invite the band up. And again, I know we're at time. I get it. I know too. So if you got to go, if you don't want to be here, okay, let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray for each and every one of these students here. I really do believe that you are moving in all of our hearts right now, Lord. Draw all of us near to you, Father. Your son Jesus speaks a better word. We all need his writing on our walls, not the writing of judgment. I pray for each and every one of these students. We love you. We love each other. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you want to leave, you're dismissed. Please do so quietly. If you want to stay for this activity, go ahead and get started with that. I think the McCreary gals are out there to scan any of you that are leaving now.